0: Anyway, we are in chapter 32 of Exodus, kind of another section that we started last week. And um, what we're dealing with today is the character of God, as we dealt with last week, and the week before, and the week before that, and the weeks preceding, and the weeks proceeding constantly, what are we wanting to deal with? The character of God, the very nature. Anytime that you read, anytime you study, look for His character. Look about, first of all, who He is. Not about what what we can get out of this, but for who He is. And uh, it's, it's always a good thing to keep in mind. As we left off last week in chapter 32, uh, at verse 10, we saw a characteristic of God, a nature of God, in His anger, His wrath. And that's not something that a lot of people like to talk about. But that is a truth about God. I'm thankful that He does have that attribute, but it's uh, uncomfortable to people who do not know Him. His wrath, because of His wrath and His anger, He was ready to destroy the nation of Israel. And uh, some uh, commandments had been broken severely. Uh, so that's one theme about God's wrath. Another theme that we see throughout here is that there is a mediator to intercept that wrath of God. And that's where we're at today. And Moses is going to exercise his role as a mediator. And then there's another theme, and it's the ground of security that we have that's outside of ourselves. Anything that happens to us, we know that is really for the good, for, for His glory. But it happens outside of us. There is nothing we can do about it. It's like the nation of Israel. Once they sinned, they themselves couldn't do anything. But there had to be a mediator. And uh, God's grace. Also, we see in this the the sin. So it reminds us of the fall of man and where man is as a result of that. And uh, that reminds us of how we are totally dependent on this great God that we worship. Absolutely dependent on Him on everything. He provides everything. He gives compassion. He gives the mercy. He gives the grace. He gives us a mediator. So those are themes that are interwoven all throughout here. And we're relying on someone outside ourselves to redeem us from our fallen state. Now, where we left off last week and where we go today is going to leave us with a perplexing problem. Because God has said that He would consume His people. And He had every right to do it. There is no reason that they should exist. Uh, They had been into idolatry. Moses intercedes for the Israelites. And that's the duty that God had given Moses. And he's going to plead with God that he would relent from destroying this nation. So you have a God here that's made a statement that He's going to destroy. And He even tells Moses, don't even come after me on this. But Moses would not relent from that. And of course, he did come to God and he asked Him to turn from His wrath. And God does. So, uh, And that's why when we get to verse 14, it's going to be very bothersome. Can it really mean... That God can change His mind—that's the title today. Can God change His mind? And this can be very discomforting when you read that. Now, uh, we're going to read God's word and to uh, to honor His word. Let's stand and read these verses 11 through 14 and chapter 32. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which He said He would do to His people. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. and we look for Your Holy Spirit to guide us into Your truths. And we know this can be a a very difficult subject, but we know that we can come to some kind of understanding as we look at Your Word and what You have for us. So teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have, first of all, the mediation of Moses. And um, Moses is now playing a role that is bigger than he's ever done before. He didn't know it was going to get to this part. And at the same time, the people are down below the mountain. They have done their terrible sin and they have spoken ill of Moses. And they'd already said, where is this man? He's not even going to show up. It's been over 40 days. And he is the one they need the most and he's the one that they're putting the blame on. And they need him because he's the mediator. God appointed him to be the mediator, and you can see the the mediating that he's doing here today as we read this. But they're oblivious for the fact that they need a mediator. All the things that they're doing right now—I mean, as you can as as Moses is interceding, they're they're sinning, yeah, they're playing, and we have a real problem here. Moses has just been informed of what's going on. And now God says he's going to destroy him. They don't have any idea at all what Moses is doing up there on that mountain. And, you know, this should really remind us, before we became Christians, we had no idea what God, what the mediator had done for us we had no clue we were in our sin just satisfying everything about our our flesh wanted and yet here is the mediator Jesus Christ and we look at this and Moses is doing the same thing for the people they don't even have uh, really know for sure they really need this mediator Moses they wanted the presence of God and that is a good thing they wanted the presence of God now and so they made him in the image that most resembled what they were familiar with. And they made a a bull, a gold bull. This made God very angry. God does not put up with idolatry. God does not put up with sin. And He's going to bring on judgment quickly as He has made a statement here. This brings us to where we're at. Where Moses is pleading. And he's pleading to God for the sake of His name. Moses is going to be pointing to the Lord here. He's not going back and saying, hey, you don't know those people. They're really good people. You know, you know They've done some really good things down there. You know. No, he goes right to God and pleads to Him for who He is. And uh, they are doing their feast of idolatry. And so he's pleading mercy. Now, redemption has everything to do with who God is. And it has everything to do with the mediator's interaction with the Father. We must have a mediator. They must have a mediator. And it's based on the perfect righteousness of the perfect mediator, Christ. Moses is not the perfect mediator because he sins too. (laughs) And he's a man like us. So he still has to rely on a mediator. But God is using him here on behalf of His people. I think this is rather remarkable what Moses does in sticking his neck out in mediating for the people. And so we get a picture here of what the mediator does. And we we, we see what Moses did. And God has said, leave me alone. Don't be interceding. He's already made that kind of statement. So here's the appeal. And the very first appeal that he goes for And he's dealing with the nature of God here. It is God's sovereign grace. God's sovereign choice. He starts with the fact that God is the one who chose these people. He's not going on on, uh, any kind of merit of the people whatsoever. But He is going to God. God always first, right? God is always first. And you're thinking, no matter what's coming up in your life, uh, whatever's going on that you're dealing with, Man, just leave it aside for the moment and go right to Him. Start thinking about His nature, thinking about His Word. Don't respond unless you know that this is uh, of the Lord and and, uh, to do what you know that would be right. The Word is pleaded or entreated. It says here in verse 11, Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, Jehovah or Yahweh, His God. And then he addressed Him, Lord... Why does your wrath burn against your people? You notice your people? And God has been saying your my people all along until this sin happened, he said, Moses, your people. Moses, what does he do? He comes right back and says, God, they're your people (laughs) right? So he throws it right back on him. I think Moses is very bold here with this plea. How's God going to respond on this? You know, but his approach to God was with boldness. He It's just like He came before the throne. And isn't that what we are to do? To come before the throne boldly, as it says in Hebrews? Moses asked, why are you going to destroy Israel? These are the people that you brought out. These are the people that you saved. These are the people that you chose, not based on anything of their own value. And you redeemed them. Now, God's first... I mean, Moses' first argument is God's election. Do you see this? You chose them, Lord. You chose them. They did not choose you, did they? This was your plan, God. Why would you want to destroy them now since you had a choice before for them to be yours? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. That's later on in the law, isn't it? Moses is writing... In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, I know that Moses knew about election. (laughs) I know that he knew about God's choice as he writes it here. Look at this. Verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because He would keep the oath which He swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Later on, Moses writes that in the law. God, why are You going to destroy Your people? You delivered these people. So he appeals with an argument called God's sovereign choice. Good place to start with, isn't it? This is exactly what God wants him to do. This is a great argument to start with. There's a second one that Moses is going to have. The whole reason that God is doing what He's doing is to make His name famous. God is a famous God. God's name means everything to Him. That's why He's doing these things. Let's go back to Exodus 9. In verse 16. God is speaking to uh, Pharaoh. And this is a quote actually out of Romans nine seventeen. But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name... May be declared in all the earth. And the reason Pharaoh is doing what he's doing is because God has given him the power. He brought him there to that. So um, it's about his name. And he's, Moses is saying, "Hey, uh, you know, Lord, we don't want dishonor to be brought to your name. The Egyptians are going to say their God delivered them out, and then he took them out to the desert and killed them." Well, that's going to spread all over the place, isn't it? Moses is arguing for the very God who has passion for His glory and he didn't want God to defame His name. And so, there's the second appeal. God's choice, God's name. Now, the third statement that Moses makes now is, he says, turn from your fierce wrath. This is in Exodus 32.12. And relent from this harm to your people. What you said you were going to do, God, you have every right to condemn them. Lord, don't do it. Turn from this wrath and anger that you have and change your mind. That's what Moses is saying. How dare you, Moses? How can you say that? How can you do that? Well, I can do that because... He is the mediator. This is what He is supposed to do. Now when it says the wrath burning hot, back in verse 11, Lord, why does Your wrath burn hot against Your people? The wrath burning hot means to be set on taking the action of judgment. He is set on judging this people. He has made it that statement. He has made this threat here, if we can say that. Moses knows God has every right to bring judgment. They deserve it. And Moses wants God to not do what God has just said He was going to do. So that's the third appeal that he uses. um, That says, turn from it. Please relent. There's a fourth one. And it's found in verse 13. And, and, and uh, again, I uh, want to reiterate at the end of verse 12 when he says, Relent from this harm to your people. He's saying, these are yours, God. And the next word that he says in verse 13 is, Remember. Now, it's not that God forgets. Can God forget? No. No. But, Moses is putting this in as much of the sense of a human can of pleading with God. And he says, here's what you said before. Lord, you have promised. You made a promise. Now, even in Exodus 2, 28, going all the way back to the, when the time that Israel was still in slavery. They cry out to God. And it says in verse 23, now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. What did He do? Well, He heard their cry. He remembered His covenant. Putting it in a way that we can understand it was time now to make His move with the people. Moses is pleading the promise. It's a good good one to go with, isn't it? Starts with election. Then he goes to God's glory. Pretty good stuff there, isn't it? Then he says... I know you can do it, but Lord, don't do it. And then he says, remember the promise. The promise he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So he says, he um, turns it back to him. So there is the pleading that Moses does. Remember your Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses now has done his intercession. I think that's rather incredible, don't you? I think that is very bold. To go to, God, to the very creator of the universe, and um, who is a God of wrath, and then go there to him and speak for them who are sinners. And remember, that's where we were at, at one time. We were like the children of Israel. Who's pleading for us? It was Jesus Christ. Now, what are some highlights here that Moses has in his prayer? Well, we definitely can say the nature of God is on display. This whole petition is depending upon God being reliable, isn't it? God is absolutely reliable in anything. Great is Thy faithfulness. There's no turning with Him. There's no changing. But yet the compassion. They fail not. Hmm, have you ever thought about that? That's like a two sided coin here. Hmm, how, how are we going to deal with this? But the nature of God is there. He is consistent, isn't He? We know that that's how God is. He's already stated His will for this nation. Now, that's one highlight of His prayer. Let's take a look at the role here that um, He has, Moses has. Just look at Moses for a moment. Look at His compassion just like the person of Christ. And mediating the compassion is definitely up front. This is not surprising God that Moses is doing this, is it? Even though God told him not to do this, Moses comes right after Him. Moses is not going to talk God into being merciful It's not going to be because Moses is so good at talking and uh, so persuasive that he himself is going to change God. God is already merciful. He's already just. But at the same time, Moses is in on this intercession. Where did Moses get his mercy? From God. God has filled him with that mercy. And He has so trained him up that now Moses is ready to do this. Moses is, is a provision for the people from God. He Himself is a provision to them and they don't even know they really need Him since He's not going to come back. Where's He at? Where is that man? Now let's go ahead and do what we want to do. Hope is grounded in God in everything. God's election is grounded in God. God's covenant is grounded in God. God's promises are grounded in God. God's actions are grounded in Him. God's goodness, God's grace, God's faithfulness, His compassion. It's sure not based or grounded upon their faithfulness and their actions and their worthiness, is it? So when we stand before our great God, we realize that we stand there naked before Him without, without the mediator. With the mediator, we are covered, aren't we? Our hope is not based on anything in us whatsoever. Our hope is theocentric, theo, God-centric, centered, God-centered. Always go to the center. That's God Himself. Our hope is outside of us. Why do we try to find the answers here? Why do we try to find the answers through everything else that the world is offering? And this is what Moses' prayer is about. It's a God-centered prayer. Lord, and He doesn't say this, Lord, You are being a little too hard on Israel here. This is a little too much, don't you think? Um, maybe they really are pretty good people. You just need to get to know them. Maybe, maybe, Lord, um. No, he doesn't do that, does he? No, he says, You chose them. You need to do this for your name and your glory. This is all God centered, isn't it? This prayer is God centered. Remember your promise. Nothing to do with their goodness. That is everything to do with with God and who He is. So it's based on His character, His promise, and mercy is the ground of salvation. Mercy and love and grace. Now, verse fourteen, and here's where we get into this strange verse. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. He relented. He repented. You will see in some translations through this kind of um, thought. Relented, repented. He changed his mind. All right. Now, what are we going to do (laughs) with this? Because we know that God can't change his mind. Well,. This is not the only place that it's mentioned. And what we have to do is look at Scripture in its wholeness, in its entirety, and then see how this comes together. The Lord would have destroyed Israel had it not been for Moses. I'm going to leave it at that because that's what Scripture says. Did you hear what I said? The Lord would have destroyed Israel had it not been for the intercession of Moses. How can you say that? We go to Psalm 106. One thing, we see it here in Exodus, but when you see it in other scriptures, then you realize that there was something very significant that happened here. 106.23 23 Here, um, the writer of Psalms is making a, a kind of a remembrance to the people of Israel and what God had done. In verse 23, he says, as, as he's talked about the uh, Red Sea, and then he said, he said that he would destroy them. That's where we're at right now. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach, to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Can we safely say that it had not been for the intercession of Moses, God would have destroyed them? Can we say that? What well, says in Exodus, the psalm writer says it here, there's something to take note of. Um, verse 45. And for their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the multitude of His mercies. He is a just God. But when He wants to show His mercy, He will do that. And He definitely put it on display. He held back His wrath and interjected His mercy when He had said He was going to destroy them. But it took an intercessor to come in. This is not the only place where we see I put this in quotes and say it's quite safely, hopefully, but God changes mind. Go to Exodus 33, the first three verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... "...saying to your descendants, I will give it, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." It is says, okay, Moses, this is later in chapter 33. He says, you go, you take the people. But I'm not going. Hmm. But he's going to send his angel. I'm not going. Makes a statement. Well, Moses is one of those that's not going to let things go. So, he pleads with God. And we drop down into verse 16 and verse 17. For then it will be known that your people... Oh, verse 15. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. That's what Moses said. If your presence is not with us, well, we don't want to go. We're not, we, we can't go without you. Okay? For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. Well, how does the Lord respond to this? So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses intercedes there. He says, we want your presence. How can we do it without your presence? And so God says, okay. (laughs) Pretty effective praying, huh? Well... He just did what God wanted him to do. God says he will do something. And then he does something different than what he had originally said. Wow, why didn't he stick with what he originally said? Well, God responds as we appeal to him. Going to him God-centered. Not for our own wishes and desire, but for his desire. God wants people to know His character. He's not only the judge, but He is the Savior. And in this time, He's showing Himself as a Savior. But He is just. He is compassionate, as He will show to Moses. Whenever Moses says, show me your glory, and he's, you know, He says, I'm a compassionate God, a gracious God, slow to anger, loving and merciful. Right? That's the kind of God He is. But he says, nevertheless, I will judge sin. That's what it comes down to. Now, God is full of grace. He's full of mercy. He wants to put that on display with the backdrop of evil sin. A black curtain back there. And He comes and shows the great grace and mercy of Him. Boy, you can see it clearly. We are to appeal to God to... Quote, Change his mind for the glory of his grace. It's not that we're really changing his mind, but in, a, in one sense there is, and we'll try to get this a little bit further. Where else can we see that God relented or repented or changed his mind? Way back in Genesis chapter six, man is sinful. Man is so wicked that God is going to have to destroy the earth with a flood as they knew it anyway. Verse 5, Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What's God do? Well, the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart. He hates it when people are so sinful. And here it says the Lord was sorry that He had made man. Do you get that? God is sorry that He had made man. Well, if I'd known that this was going to happen, I'd never made man. Is He saying that? God knows everything. He knew that man would do this, He knew that Adam and Eve would sin. Why did He make them then? Well, that's a tough question. We may not ever know that fully. But I know one thing, His grace and His glory, His mercy and His love and compassion is certainly on display because even in the fact that there is sin, God's grace is much bigger. But He was sorry that He made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart. Tough, uh, tough statement there. Go to Genesis 18. There's another time when he is really angry at mankind. And this is Abraham. Abraham's on the scene at this time. And Abraham <coughs> is going to be an intercessor for Sodom and Gomorrah. Actually, uh, a lot in his family. His relative there. Mm. Picking it up in verse 26. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I'll spare all the place for the sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I am, I who am but dust and ashes, have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. And I suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous, and would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, If I find forty five, I will not destroy it. And. Abraham spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. Do you think he thinks there are really 50 righteous people or even 20 there? He probably pretty well knows that they're not. I mean, God knows, but I mean, Abraham even knows this. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry. And I'll speak once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. Don't you like the... Um, communion here that Abraham has with God? Talking back and forth? Isn't it great to be able to talk to God? Well, here God is talking back to him. We don't always get that kind of response, but at the same time, God does speak to us in many ways, usually through His Word. But suppose ten be found there. He said, I'll not destroy it for the sake of ten. From fifty all the way down to ten. So the Lord went His way as soon as He finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to His place. What happened? Well, God said, I'm going to destroy it all. But at the same time, He's saying, if there's 50 righteous there, and Abraham, how about 40? 40, 45? 40? 30? All the way down to 10. And God was willing to do that. But God had already made a statement. 50. What's Abraham doing? He's interceding. Just like Moses was interceding. He cared about the people that were of God, right? Isn't that incredible? uh, We've got to like that. What we're getting at is that God involves Himself in human affairs. And He does care. He responds to us. He engages with us. He wants us to pray. He wants us to petition Him. He wants us to pray hard. He wants us to pray hard for the hard-hearted souls that are lost. You can say, there's no way God's ever going to save that guy. I know how bad he is. You ought to see how he acts and talks. (laughs) You know, that guy is worthless. God will never save him. Pray hard for him. Pray hard. Pray hard. Hey, you know what? This church needs to pray hard that it would reach its full potential in reaching the lost. Would you say we've reached our full potential in reaching the lost? Would you say that? Are you praying hard for the lost? Are you praying that God would use this church to bring people to Him? We need to do that. I think this is a lesson here for us. We really should desire that those people who are lost and sinful would experience the same grace and compassion that we have. And by the way, we need to have love and grace and compassion for all people. Unbelievers, believers. Are you exhibiting God's grace in your life, in your walking and in your talk? If you're not, you're not showing His glory. God is a God of compassion and grace. He says, be ye holy for I am holy. That means we are to be holy. right? We, we can only do that through the power of His Spirit. But that means we also have to be compassionate. He say, well, that, that's a thing that God does. I can't do. That's a communicable attribute. That means it is translated to us. And yes, we are expected to show love and compassion to people who do not show compassion to us. Or we don't think they show compassion. Show it anyway. God says, love your enemies. Well, I don't, they don't deserve it. You don't ever have the right to ever, ever say that. Do you see what kind of God this is? This is a great God, and He has put His Spirit within us so that we too have to be this way. Are you interceding like Moses is interceding? Or are you saying, hey, I don't care for them. They can just get out of the way. Is that the way we want it? That's wrong. I'm telling you, God's Word um, should make an impact on us. We should be changing as we look at how Moses had been changed. Turn to 1 Chronicles 21.15. What's happening here? Well, we're still dealing with the fact that I keep putting this up in quotes until we get to the end here. God changed His mind because the Scripture says that. How do we deal with this? This is this is really uh, this is struggling uh, in, in my mind here. I can't I can't hold on to this thing. Um, God uh, sends a plague upon Israel in verse fourteen, and seventy thousand men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. He's going to destroy Jerusalem. Okay. As he was destroying, as he was right in the midst of destroying, the Lord looked, there's that word, and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite. Now this is incredible. God said, I'm going to go and mow down Jerusalem. And as he was doing it, he relented of doing that. He restrained from doing what he had said. And at the same time, we remember God's attribute that he he is immutable. He does not change. But yet we have something here very bothersome in that he does something different. We're trying to get to this. And we're not going to get to the final answer. We're going to give some good suggestions by some good people in the lord but yet uh, this is a thing that is a mystery too numbers 23 19 and here's here are some verses that deal with the immutability of god and believe me his plans don't change god does not change in that sense. But let's look at this. God is not a man that He should lie. Right? Nor a son of man that He should repent. Change. Has He said and will He not do? Or has He spoken and will He not make it good? So there's a verse to wrestle with compared to the other verse that we just read. There are more. Let's go to 1 Samuel 15.11. Now, the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Okay, God is telling Samuel that he is regretting that he made Saul king. Well, did not God know that Samuel was going to be this way? Well, yes, God knows everything. What's going on? I greatly regret that he was king, that I that I chose him. Go to Jonah chapter three, verse ten. people of Nineveh. They're wicked. They're evil. Of course, Jonah does not want anybody in Nineveh to repent. They are the enemies. And if we were to take that up to present day, uh, I know that we have enemies. This nation does. And we are in a fight right now. We're in war. Sometimes it's very hard for me to pray for those people who we're fighting against that stand against everything that God stands for. They don't believe in Christ. But yet, I know that there are some there that God has chosen to be His. They're elect. They're not saved yet, but there will be. And there are, there are quite, quite a few who have been saved. The Muslim people. God can do that. God does that. And so, therefore, I still have to pray for my enemies. And at the same time, I have to pray for my nation, (laughs) who's an enemy of God as a whole, not everybody. Verse 10. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that He had said He would bring upon them. And He did not do it. He said He was going to destroy the city. But at the same time, he sends Jonah there to give the news, the good news, if you repent. I'll retract from what I'm going to do. And he did. Amazing. Uh, Here is what Jonah knows of God, and he has him correct. Uh, Jonah says in verse 2, matter of fact, start in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. (laughs) And he became angry. Because God is going to not destroy the city. So he prayed to the Lord and said, "Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? that I knew this was going to happen. Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know, look at this, I know You are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. One who relents from doing harm. Therefore, now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. He knew God, but yet it didn't come out the way that He wanted it. And, you know, God, I know that You are very able to do this. This is how good of a God You are. I don't like that part. Just take me out. But he knew God. He He knew the attributes of God there, didn't he? He knew about what Moses had seen. What do we have going on here? This is incredible. How about Jeremiah chapter 26 verse 13? God says he's going to destroy and then he holds back from destroying a whole city like Jerusalem or totally holding back from destroying Nineveh at that time. And in Jeremiah 26:13, thou now therefore amend your ways and your doings. And obey the voice of the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent concerning the doom that He has pronounced against you. He pronounced doom. Jeremiah reports this. Doom upon Israel. Doom upon the nations around them. But he says the Lord will relent when they obey God. I think we're on to something there. That's incredible. I think he's making quite a statement. Well, okay. God is immutable. God doesn't change. Nothing happens that God has not planned, does it? He's never taken by surprise. Nothing ever happens outside of His own will. First Samuel 15 verse 29. Pick it up, 27. Samuel speaking to Saul. We were in this chapter earlier, if you remember, back in the, uh, verse 11. Now look at verse 27. Samuel turned around to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent for he is not a man that he should relent god is not a man who changes his mind he doesn't lie he doesn't relent he doesn't repent he doesn't change his mind what uh, what's going on go to numbers 20 did i do numbers 2319 look at that again God is not a man that he should lie. That's just what we just uh, read in Samuel, right? Nor son of man that he should repent. Turn to Psalm thirty-three, verse eleven. So we're getting the uh, nature of God in his immutability down, right? He is not a God who changes. Thirty-three, eleven. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Forever. That's unchanging, isn't it? How about Isaiah 46, 9 and 10? Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all My pleasure. I'm going to do what I have planned to do. And nothing is going to thwart that plan. Hebrews 13.8 This is about Jesus. Of course, Jesus being God. And the writer here of Hebrews makes this statement. 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, today and forever in the past the present the future he is the same that means he's immutable he is unchanging we have to agree with that we know that 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 is right no way so our next question is this is this problematic is it contradictory well god forbid it is not contradictory because we know that God never contradicts himself. The Bible never contradicts itself. What God has secretly decided, He will always do. It will happen. No one can thwart His plan. God is perfect. He cannot change. Now, if He's perfect, and if He changed for the better, then He wasn't perfect, was He? Because perfect is perfect, and there can't be any any improvement upon God. He is the same. God doesn't evolve into something better and better. That's what the Mormons believe in. That God, as as uh, God is, we will become, and He is becoming even more and more. Right? That that's a mutable God, a changeable God. We do not believe that. That is not scripture whatsoever. God. Um, cannot change for the better or change for the worse so is there a contradiction no a contradiction asserts something then asserts something that is the totally opposite I have a straight stick this stick is straight the same stick is not straight what have I just done I've contradicted myself. I have said two opposites. A cannot equal B in this instance. A is A and B is B. One is and one is not. God doesn't know. That's what a a contradiction is if you're using the identical terms. That's that's the thought here. Uh, The Bible is the very word of God. There are no errors. God can't be saying two different things. Ultimately the topic can be problematic for us in the sense that we try to solve things in the Bible that seem to be contradictory, but we, are, we know they're not contradictory because the Bible cannot do that. We're believers in the Word. But there's a problem, not with God, and no problem with the Word of God, right? The problem is with us. We have finite minds. God has an infinite mind. So, we can't be comfortable with contradictions whatsoever. But it does say the Lord changed His mind, and it does say He cannot change His mind. You've seen the Scriptures, right? What are we going to do with this? Well, two things to keep in mind, though. One thing. The Lord genuinely responds to His creatures. He relents. He responds to His creatures. Number two, the Lord's secret decrees never alter. Those are not conflicting statements. God can make a threat. And He's making a true threat. And at the same time, to restrain from unloading His very anger and wrath and come in with His grace and mercy. He can do that. So that's one way. These are twin truths that we're looking at. No contradictions. It's very difficult. And that's why um, I was um, listening to somebody this week, uh, R.W. Glenn. And he said, in the mystery of God, God Himself is unchangeable. Right? But He responds to human beings and sometimes alters the course from the way it's going, and that's a mystery, not a contradiction. It's okay to have mystery in the Bible, but take it as far as you can go with it. Just don't ex- just say what's a mystery, and then I don't know, you know. And because the Trinity is a mystery. You can take it so far with what Scripture says. We believe in the Trinity. It's vital. It's important. So then, you know, teach it. But then you have to leave it and let it go at a certain point. Both statements here are true. Like we looked in 1 Samuel 15.11. God relents, but He's a God that doesn't uh, relent. Uh, Try to explain that. Uh, I will quote from Charles Hodge. And this is the great theologian back in the late 1800s from Princeton. Uh, Systematic theology that he left us with was incredible. I think this is quite a statement. This might help a little bit. God is immutable, but nevertheless, He is not a stagnant ocean but ever living, ever thinking, ever active, ever suiting his actions for his creatures, and he is suiting his actions to the accomplishing of his infinitely wise design. He has an overall plan. And he has plans within that plan that are going to be set exactly the way it is. And he's still not going to be changing Hodge goes on to say, whether we can harmonize these facts or not is of minor importance. (laughs) We are constantly being called upon to believe things in the Bible that are without, uh, that are, things that are, that are true, without being told how they are and how they can be. And that's why we use, like, the example of the Trinity, or go to any doctrine, the doctrine of election. We believe that. It's true. It's there. But yet, there is evangelism and the sovereignty of God. And we have verses for that. But We're chosen by God. And it's all His work that does it, but yet He has us involved in this. And He has us pray to Him. So He wants us to respond to His truth, and when we respond, He responds back. Like what happened to Moses here. God is compassionate. He is loving. He is merciful. And yet He is also just. He may not choose to withhold His wrath and show how just He is and unlovely This This, what we're reading, never undermines His justice. But He will give mercy to some. That's what He has done with us and His whole church. His elect ones. Ones He predestined before the foundations of the world. He chose to do that. And chose not to put the wrath on us even though we deserve it just like anybody else. Don't we? There's nothing we deserve. But He withheld that from us. Aren't you glad? Aren't you praising God because He withheld that wrath? And because there is a mediator for us that keeps that from coming down upon us? Aren't you glad that He used Moses to mediate between the people and Himself? Because that is a picture of what happened to us. And and there's one part of you saying, oh, look at the idolatry they're doing. God should have just wiped out the whole nation and then started over with Moses. That's what God said He was going to do. But we can't do that. You say, well, they ought to. you know. Hey, bring that tower down upon them, God. <laughs> the sun's a thunder, right? We all deserve it. That's the thing. And yet, His, his plan never changes, does He? Are you seeing this a little bit? It, it, it's, it's hard to fathom and put all together. Ligon Duncan, um, Presbyterian wrote this that I think is helpful. The gracious God of Israel has withheld a deserved destruction in response to the prayers of the mediator. God's plan hasn't changed. The previously announced course of action is not going to be put in effect. He announced it, but he didn't put it in effect. It wasn't that Moses had such good arguments that God had to give up and give in. Duncan goes on to say, God is making a point as human emotions such as this one. Changing his mind makes this very dramatic. When we see that statement, was it some kind of bothersome to you? I wonder how this is going to work out. This human pattern of behavior grabs a hold of you. So in light of all the other things that are said, we just can't come along and just just say it's an anthropomorphism, but I think that's what Duncan is also bringing in here though too. That does help. It, It puts it in a way that we can understand. God doesn't change His mind, but yet in a sense that we can see that He changed, He altered the plan there that was going to happen. He did. You know, He was going to destroy Him. He said that, but He didn't do that. So, what's going on? Well, uh, as far as Moses can understand and then the nation of Israel can understand, there was some kind of change. Now, you know what this does to me? It doesn't scare me at all. Matter of fact, I think every one of you should be comforted. If you are His, He says in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to to His purpose. So He'll make those things work. We want to line up with His will, whatever that is. But at the same time, we want want to keep praying. You know, God ordains everything to happen. You know that? And He never does anything to harm us. Romans 8, 28. The suffering and the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. That was all orchestrated by God. He used people in that that sinned against Him by doing that, but yet at the same time it was still God's plan. Isn't that amazing? And our minds are finite and they try to wrap that all around and you you can't... You know, they're still held responsible for what they did. But this had to happen because this was God's plan. The way we were saved. Does prayer matter? I think this is what we want to get to. Here's a sovereign God, if He's sovereign, He's going to do everything, then why pray? People are going to ask that. For one thing, we have no option, He tells us to. <laughs> tells us to pray. Pray always, right? Um, his secrets, His secret plan never alters. And yet He takes action when we call. Prayer really does work. We have confidence in Him. And that's why in Hebrews He tells us that we are go boldly before the throne. Did Moses do that? Yep. Did Abraham do that? Yep. David, others, right on down through the whole of faith, they all did that. Lick and Duncan says another thing. I'll read this. We'll be done shortly here. His point is, is uh, not that we can somehow change the secret will and plan of God, but that God is consistent in the way that He deals with us. Why then would God say, Let me alone that I may destroy them. Did God say that? Yeah, He did. He says that in chapter, uh, chapter, one, chapter 32 before we get to verse 11. Why would He say that unless He's about to do it? Because it was vital for them to know their need of a mediator. They need to know they need a mediator. You remember that the people of God decided that they didn't need Moses. Anybody here think that uh, Israel thought that they didn't need Moses when this was all over? (laughs) You know that they were taught a lesson in that. There's no way you can get through this incident and don't realize that you need a mediator. God gives you a mediator. You certainly know that, don't you? And secondly, it was vital for God to do this, that His people would realize that His threat of destruction upon them was deserved. And you know, if this event had not happened, it would have been very easy easy for Israel when they got into the Promised Land and said, you know... We're pretty good. We did pretty good out there. We survived that. No wonder God chose us. We can't ever say that on anything, can we? We are now taking glory. And God was not going to share that glory with them. Thirdly, this event was vital in that the people of God to understand why God did not bring the threatened destruction. They learned that on the basis of Moses' intercession, we read that in Psalms, as well as our Exodus 32, that if it had not been for Moses and his intercession, God would have totally destroyed the people. Moses said nothing about them, but he said everything about God. His sovereignty, his goodness, his name, right, his grace, everything about his covenant, remember the covenant. nobody could have come out from that and said, "Well, you know, God spared us because we were sort of faithful. Kind of we were pretty faithful, oh." Well, I believed. Yeah, 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 I did something. I believed. It's nothing about you. While we were doing our idolatry, God was mediating for us. As we were down below the mountain, He was up there mediating all about the mediator all about the covenant all about the mercy of God God does not change but He is constant as the northern star in punishing unbelief and idolatry and He will forgive the repentant and keep His covenant when we fail great grace one last thing down here we can all read whenever God promises something and His people are presumptuous He will judge Whenever people sin and God threatens and then people repent, He will receive them. His secret plans are never altered and yet He takes actions when we call. Let's pray.